I'm gonna tell you a story. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. This is a story often attributed to Ernest Hemingway, although the link to him is unlikely. It's a story so short yet so dense. Hope, anticipation, planning, then loss, disappointment, grief. These are universally human experiences. And maybe that's what makes a good story, its universal resonance. As Neil Gaiman said, stories are good lies that say true things. But what is the difference between a story and a myth? Are these just synonyms for the same thing? Why does the difference matter? Is one more suited to universal truth than the other? Why should we care? What are the myths that animate our beliefs and our behaviors? Has the canon been sealed? Are our myths inherited? Or can we make our own? That's a long list of questions, and we're not going to answer all of them in this episode. But they are important questions nonetheless. They're important because, whether we are aware of it or not, stories shape us. It's our collective and shared mythology that society runs on. The American Dream, for example, is a socio-cultural mythology that animates Americans. Think about how many decisions we've made in our lives that have been informed by this myth, who we've surrounded ourselves by, whether or not we've pursued a college education, our notions of ownership and home buying, the green suburban lawn and the corner office. These are both ideas in our social psyche that are tethered to the myth of the American dream. Each culture has these myths. Culture cannot exist without them. This includes the culture of design, and that's what we're going to explore today. I'm Joel Ferris. Welcome to The Fuzz, a podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. Yes, today we're talking to Alonso Toledo. Alonso sits in our San Francisco office. He's a strategy director for the Northwest region. But more than that, uh, Alonso is an expert in mythology and has a newsletter called, I forgot, shit. It's called Applied Mythology. Okay. Let me read that. It's okay. I, I, is it, can you say it's a substack or is it just a, a newsletter? I mean, it, will people understand that? I can... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Great to have you. Thanks for hanging out with us and talking about this stuff. Hey, thank you, Caroline and Joel. Very happy to, to be invited to speak. Um, it's It's always a pleasure for me to speak about mythology, and it's not so much on the sort of anecdotal side of, you know, fun fact, this is what myths say, but there's a lot of lessons learned from mythology that uh, directly apply to storytelling and to our own interpretation of the world, which I think is uh, oddly relevant to the work that we do sort of both at Gunster and outside it. So um happy to talk about this and kind of jump into the rabbit hole together. Yeah. Let's start there. I mean, you, you know, say more about why myths matter and how are myths and story connected to what we do as creatives? Can we even step back a little bit and give like a one-on-one -on, -one on mythology itself? Because I think a lot of us have different understandings on mythology and the typical one we associate with is Greek mythology and it goes way beyond that. So mythology for dummies 101, 
Yes. Uh, can we start there and go into creativity? Uh, let's. That's a good place to start. Um, and just as a caveat, I'd say that you know when. Thank you for presenting me as an expert in mythology. Uh, I, I I I want to sort of limit that just to keep things honest, to say that I. I consider myself uh, well-versed in Greek and Arthurian mythology, mm. which is where I draw most of my references from. But uh, mythology is, I mean, one of the great things about mythology is how universal it is. And a lot of the studies done around mythology that mainly come from anthropology all have to do with how to systematize the recurring patterns that happened in myths. And uh, you know, one of the great things about it is is to see how those patterns um, emerge constantly from cultures that are completely separate. And you'll find like uh, universal uh, floods. You'll find you know the same kind of stereotypes of the angry gods or you know the creation of man, the cosmogenesis, the apocalypse. You know, the ending of all things. And those are um, sort of very interesting to see how they recur and how different variations happen in different cultures. So just as a kind of means of understanding where we're coming from and what might be a kind of atavistic understanding of, of stories and patterns, it's a great, uh, it, they're just great references to have. I'll say that, you know, as part of our Mythology 101 uh, course, it's, it's difficult to talk it without mentioning uh, Joseph Campbell, who is perhaps the best known figure uh, that popularized mythology around 1950, more or less, when he writes a book called uh, The Heroes of a Thousand Faces. And what he does is he explains a sort of universal or universalist approach to understanding myth. And he says that, or what, his, what he posits is that every uh, myth follows a same pattern, which is basically a play in three acts. I mean, there's an introductory part the first act where there is a call to an adventure, and that's where the hero or heroine sort of abandons the mundane, your know, ordinary life to embark on a quest, you know, towards greatness. There's a middle act where a great deed is performed. You know, the dragon is slain. You know, the treasure is recovered. The elixir is found. You know, the holy marriage, the contact with the divine. There's always some sort of climax, and then there's a third act, sort of the denouement where. Uh, where the hero goes back to the place where he started, only he's transformed. He or she is transformed. Um, there's, um, and, and this is part of our sort of understanding or a popular understanding of how myths work. And one of the you know greatest fans of, of Campbell was George Lucas. And you'll find that that same story structure is repeated throughout the Star Wars movies. And you have a lot of, you know, Hollywood writers that use that and who actively give courses on how to, you know, write for movies or for television with uh, with Campbell's vision of this sort of universal approach, which he calls a hero's journey. Personally speaking, you know, Joseph Campbell was like a father figure to me because I kind of grew up with with this uh, love and respect for mythology coming through his through his lens. And uh, like, you know, following every good mythological pattern, uh, the father figure eventually needs to turn into parasite. And I came to absolutely reject everything that Campbell says. And I have a, a completely different approach to understanding myths, but that owes a lot to that first structure that he lays out. And maybe connecting this with, you know, the original question of, you know, why do myths matter? I think that at the core of every, you know, great myth is this, capacity to separate the mundane from the extraordinary. 
you know, the more things scale up, the more ambition scale up, the more, you know, the desire scale up in real life, the more attuned they are or the more they can connect to how that same pattern has played out in mythology. And I think that that's one of the sort of the great reasons why we should pay attention to this. And, you know, whereas, you know, with Campbell, when he talks about this kind of three, three structured, uh, three act structured uh, myth, I, my own taxonomy for looking at this or for understanding mythology is that at the very core of it, what we find is a desire. There is, um, you know, desire drives myth and every, you know, extraordinary desire, be it a thirst for power, you know, for immortality, to avoid prophecies, to seek honor, to, you know, find, marry the most beautiful woman in the world or you know before you say that's shamanistic it also works the other around it's like oh to get you know the most the bravest knight in the world those desires when they reach this peak of uh of intensity then they fit well or they trigger the creation of myths and that's why there are areas in our everyday life that are automatically attuned to that uh, that's why i find that politics are very mythological because there is this sort of thirst to govern and to have power that that dialogues at that level. Uh, that's why, for instance, urbanism, I think, has a, a, a great potential for mythology because it's, hey, you want to design a city, you want to build a, a, the reality for a lot of people. I think design has a potential for mythology as well, uh, as, as long as it's framed, uh, if it's framed correctly. So to kind of just recap a bit, it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, mythology is a container for a pattern that we see uh, and that pattern can be tied to human behavior or a set of variables in a system or a relationship between two entities or systems, whether it's humans and nature or it's uh, whatever. Is that a fair summation? So for example, Mythology, in my mind, I often understand as a way of either ascribing meaning to an experience that we don't fully understand, or a way of uh, bottling and vesseling knowledge and learning to pass on to another group, or to scale that bottling and learning, that that vesseling and learning. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, I challenge that it's about finding meaning. I think it's more about, because a lot of myths are not going to say random, but they're not moralistic in the sense that, oh, you know, this happens because this this outcome and that's right. the sort of happy ending to it. Right. I'd right. say it's more about finding familiarity and making the sort of potential outcomes of stories be just familiar to us. It's like, okay, well, we understand that, you know, if you see, and to kind of tie it with the idea of, you know, why, why are politics so mythological? It's like, okay, well, there are so many sort of mythological figures of different uh, rulers or different uh, attempts of, you know, consolidating power and then losing it, that it allows us to kind of forecast what those patterns of behaviors are and what those outcomes will be. And so, to me, that's the, you haven't necessarily attached it to that, but to me, when I think of mythology, it creates certain like expectations and then cultures because you are able to sort of predict those patterns and those 
human behaviors in a way. So the way I think about mythology, especially in Greek mythology, is like the influence that it has in building a culture because it it kind of frames our expectations around something. Would you agree with that or you don't necessarily tie those two together? I, I do. And I, and I, actually I do. And, and I would add to that, that mythology is very mimetic uh, in the sense that, you know, today with, you know, how we communicate ourselves through memes, which is almost kind of going back to ancient Egypt, it's just a hieroglyphs. I mean, we'll just kind of see, you know, mm -hmm. two Spider-Men pointing at each other. It's like, okay, and we already understand what that is about. There's, there's already a, a contained um, context or there's a code in the image. That same thing happens with with mythology, if you see, uh, you know, the uh, a, a figure like imagine the meme or the hashtag, there's something I use a lot in the in, in my applied mythology uh, applied mythology Substack. We have a hashtag of say, you know, the Mad King. It's like, okay, well, that is already that that hashtag that meme of mythology already implies part of a story. Like, okay, well, we can we can connect that to, you know, the Mad King, you know, Tantalus in Greek mythology, or we can connect it to the Sultan and the Arabian Nights. But it's already a recurring figure that it inscribes itself in a pattern of conduct or in a pattern of a story that already makes us be kind of, again, more familiar with how that story will unfold or with the different ramifications of the story. And maybe to... To, to explain this a little bit better, I, I'd say that, you know, before I, I presented, you know, the desire as as the core, sort of the prime mover of a myth, uh, I'd say the next component of a myth that makes us sort of understand it is, um, is that a desire needs to be accompanied by a plan, by a plan to fulfill that desire. Just the desire alone, just saying, hey, I want to be immortal. I mean, there's no myth to that. The story comes with how that desire, you know, unfolds. So just to take an example, you know, with immortality, we have, you know, the Greek hero Achilles, who's known for having been immortal, except for this Achilles heel. And at the start of that myth is his mother wanting her son not to die. So when we talk about, you know, the epic uh, intensity of a desire, here we have a supernatural, extraordinary desire, which is a mother wanting to keep her child from dying. And so the plan that accompanies that desire is to say, well, I will grant you know him immortality by, in this case in particular, like bathing him in water. So that will that will make him invulnerable. But then again, there are different variations of that because, like in Norse mythology, we have something very similar. We have the goddess Frigg, who wants her son Baldur, who's this sort of Apollonian you know god, this beautiful god of virtue, and who's destined to die young. She wants to keep him from dying. So rather than making him invulnerable, what his mother does is she creates a pact with all materials on earth, and she makes them all promise that you know, they will not harm her son. So we have one desire, a same desire in two different mythologies that are accompanied by different plans to fulfill them, and that's where you start seeing like the variations between the myths. So you have all this uh, variations between the memes. You have uh, and you start connecting them together. You say, well, okay, well, in this case, you know, this desire led down this this path, and this other myth, it's the same desire that led down by a different path. Now, um, the part where um, I, I I find that you know my background is in in, in design and in and in well, project management and strategy and a lot of that. But the part where, you know, if I were to draw a Venn diagram between what myth tellers say, what myth makers say, and what designers say, is that 
both occupations require the designing of plans. Like in both cases, you need mm -hmm. you need to find a way to execute that desire and to execute it by telling a story or by laying out a sequence of activities or a sequence of spaces through which that story can un can can unfold. And um, the if if from desire, you know, if if every desire is at the core of a myth, and then you have a plan to fulfill it, the third and sort of last component of it is what is the means or the resource that is useful or that is critical in order for that plan to succeed. And if we go to the story of Achilles, just to continue with the same one, it's like, okay, well, you know, the, his mother would not have been able to make her son invulnerable, which was the plan, if not for the existence of the magic waters that can provide that invulnerability. Or, you know, Frick would not have made her son Balder, you know, also invulnerable, if not for her power that she wielded over materials to make them promise not to hurt her son. And um, and so that means that is the part where I find like this very interesting connection with architecture, because the means implies there being something in reality, like a physical, like key thing that allows a myth to, to happen. And uh, and this can be an object. It's like uh, the magic sword that you know will kill the dragon, or it can be you know a power. It's like oh the the water that grants invulnerability, but it can also be a space. And we have these tropes, these memes of spaces in mythology. We have you know, the, the the floating castle. We have the secret chamber. We have the hidden garden. We have the tower without doors. And all of these are uh, models of design that already come with this baggage of the story behind them that makes us connect to these stories. So uh, in my, you know, in, in my activity, you know, in designing is like, I like to connect that thing that I'm designing to, okay, what is the myth that it resonates best with? And that is, of course, you know, due to it's like, what is the desire that I'm trying to fulfill? What is the plan to do that? So, um, so that's a really, really fascinating connection point, in my opinion. I think to me, the fascinating one is like desire is this thing that, you know, you romanticize desire because it's, you know, attached to mythology. But in my mind, even as you were describing the desire of the mother is like, is not even attached to space, it's attached to problem solving. They had an issue, right? Like they were trying to solve for their son not dying. And then this and yes, it is a desires and then it has all the means and how you solve for that. So to me, beyond like the built environment of architecture, like is fascinating mythology as a process of thinking, call it desire, call it solutions. Uh, but is that mindset of thinking into the story? Well, the, the, the great thing about that, you know, and as, as a corollary is that it makes, you know, design be, you know, storytelling or myth making makes design be much less about the materiality of it. It's less about its physical constitution and more about the experience of it. Now, I always say that, you know, design, you know, applied to space that, you know, or architecture, that design is more about, um designing activities in time rather than designing, you know, than rearranging molecules and, and coming up with a physical, you know, configuration of space. 
you know, mythology is is all about theater, and 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 architecture is its prop. I mean, architecture is just the space where this the theater should happen, where these activities should happen. Yes, and the rituals attached to it. It's the most fascinating piece to me of that storytelling. So, what are the ingredients of myth? I mean, so you've got desire, you have a means to fulfill the desire, and you have the plan. And you have the plan. Yes. And so those are the three big ingredients of, of mythology. Yes. Now, they all come together, though, with what I call the deed. I mean, if you have the desire and the plan to fulfill the desire and the means through which to fulfill the desire, then you need to actually fulfill it. Like there's the, at what point does, does do things actually happen? And that's a part where is... At the end of the day, it's uh, kind of the, the connection point or the through line across all myths is that fulfillment of of that deed. At the end of the day, sort of, you know, slaying the dragon or, you know, becoming an, an, an immortal or, or anything. I mean, it all comes up to the opportunity to step up to the batting plate and sort of do what you need to do. And that is, and that's the part, that's the sort of, to me, the correct framing of experience in, in space, like what is that extraordinary experience that is aligned with that desire and that all of the space around you has been designed to fulfill. And, and, and so, you know, we, we often refer to, you know, the experiences in space as, as things which are, uh, which are important, but, but somewhat, you know, mundane. And I want to see as, you know, one of the things that, you know, all three of us do on our day-to-day basis, which is to think about, you know, the future of work. So, okay, well, you know, we're going to create meaningful experiences in, in offices, you know, for people to experience collaboration that they can't do, you know, remotely. It's like, yes, I mean, that happens. But then what is that peak activity? What is that sort of peak mythological deed that can also happen in an office? And that sort of frames the question in a different way. And, you know, personally, I'm more on the sort of return to office side than the work from home side, because the, you know, working from home is the suspension of myth. I mean, we have, we know, we lost the space on which to perform We by, by working remotely. And even by having sort of this podcast in different cities, we've lost that sort of theater stage on which we can perform a deed that is connected to that sort of mythological language. So because these stories, they need this, they need a stage on which to be performed and they need an audience. And we've sort of lost that virtually. Mm, that's interesting. So you don't think that there can be distributed stages that are connected virtually? I mean, I, I think there are limitations to, I mean, just as, you know, as a, a space can be a means and a myth, I mean, it, not all not all myths require a space and so i think that there's you know a lot of storytelling that can happen outside of space but then whenever we do design space there is that opportunity to inscribe it within a larger story i think that's my point It's, it's not exclusive but it's a missed opportunity if it's not seen that way right what about myth as i mean i think about just the idea that myth mythology is a way that we understand ourselves and it's the way that we make sense of our own lives right so you could say i have a desire and that desire is to achieve this kind of um 
whether it's economic security or it's a relationship or it's um, some other outcome like buying a home or going getting into a good school or getting the next promotion, right? Whatever that that desire is. And so we construct a path to getting there and the the means of achieving and i forget the word that you used or the phrase that you used for that thing the the you know the the mythological sword or whatever it is that you know that achieves the things yeah the means (laughs) and it seems like you know mythology kind of is in everything in that sense right like we can't make sense of our lives and of reality without some story structure to some degree um and then there's stories embedded in stories embedded in stories right so it's like Mm -hmm. my personal mythology is embedded in the mythology of my team which is embedded in the mythology of a larger organization which is embedded in the mythology of a particular social context right which is you know how i don't know how big you want to go but um can you speak to the relationship between mythologies and is there a kind of co-informing relationship or what's the nature and characteristics of that relationship sure um i'd say i i would disagree at the beginning with 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 the beginning of, of this and that's that you know our our actions are all sort of connected to mythology. I, I, I'd say that some of our actions are. And when I, and let me just sort of double down and saying that mythology is what separates the extraordinary and the epic from the mundane. So mm-hmm. um, if, if you're saying that, well, I have my mythology of how I brush my teeth in the morning. Well, that's, I think we're misusing the term mythology. Uh, but if you, you know, if I have a, you know, desire to, you know, to build a house and the story through which I, you know, uh, buy my house or I build it is like, okay, that there's a potential there. And if, uh, and if it's a, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to be a homeowner and I just saved up money for 20 years and I was able to buy a house, you know, that's, that's, that's nice. But if you say, Hey, I built this house myself because I wanted to live at the peak of the mountain because I want to see the city, you know, from this way. I mean, if there is that connection of saying, well, this is a desire that is extraordinary. It's not just a house. It has to be this type of house, and it has to be in this location. It has to be by this time. Then the myth starts building up. So the more extraordinary the desire is, the more you connect to myth, and the and the more you know. And once you dive into that, the more that you find that that myth is inscribed within other myths or resonates with other myths. And because then you find you know the, I know you want to build a house on the top of a mountain, you know, and that's your peak desire. And then you know it turns out that you know, in your quest to build that house, you find your, you know, magical helper who is the general contractor who also has his own mythology because it's all you find the one that's always wanted to build a house on the top of a mountain, you know, like this. And I and then the and then you know your myth starts resonating with other people's myths. But it only happens when you reach that level in the first place. Everything else, you know, I think that myths are a, are a reminder for us that that level of intensity exists. Otherwise, it's it's just just sort of brushing our teeth, and um, the way in which those sort of myths kind of bounce off each other that you mentioned at the end, you know how they are inscribed within each other, and there's like these these sort of Russian dolls of of, of myths. Uh, I see it as a cyclical pattern of myths where it's not so much that they 
that they're inscribed or circumscribed, but it's just that mythology is always kind of like a pendulum that's always sort of doing things only to undo them. And this is this is perhaps the most um, the part that I defend most about how to read myths. And that's that there is there are no myths that just start with, you know, once upon a time and then they end with, you know, they lived happily ever after. That's a sort of rom-com version of mythology. Myths are these sort of, you know, the more interesting myths are the ones that are, you know, these long sagas where things constantly get done only to then get undone, only to then get sort of redone. If we talk about Achilles kind of going back to him, you know, it's like, okay, well, his mother goes into all of these, you know, great efforts to make him immortal. And obviously the story doesn't end there. I mean, if you have this, you know, this warrior that's immortal, then what could be a greater myth than to make immortal than to now have to kill the one that's immortal? So then all these efforts to make the person immortal are now sort of countered by the Trojan War and how, oh, yes, he was immortal, but he had one weak spot and it just so happens that he gets shot there. It's like, ah, then he becomes, and then he dies. So how do you kill, you know, creating the immortal warrior triggers the myth of how to kill the immortal warrior. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we recover him? It's like, and then Odysseus goes to the underworld to consult with the ghost of Achilles. It's like, okay, how do you sort of bring him back to life? And this, the, it, you see these constant, you know, back and forth with that. And sometimes they get, you know, to this ridiculous level of like, make up your mind. It's like, oh, well, there's, you know, the sword that needs to be forged to kill the dragon and the, ford, the sword breaks. And then the hero's son, you know, reforges the sword and then it breaks again and then it gets reforged. And so there's this constant sort of back, back and forth between myths that um, evolve storytelling from the, you know, Campbell's three-act play, you know, the, the call to adventure, the, you know, the performing of the, of the deed, and then the return, you know, home, to this, okay, well, the actions that take place, you know, that start in the myth are a consequence of a previous action or something that was established that needs to get challenged. And, and then, you know, by the end of this, okay, we'll have gone this far into the myth, and maybe as designers, we will have gone this far into creating a design. But then, you know, what is the next chapter in the story of this design? Oh, it's it's going to be that it breaks. And knowing that, knowing the finitude of what we do and leaving the invitation open for sort of the next generation to undo what we've done is something that is just great about design. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the hubris of saying that, well, we're, we're just going to do something and that's going to be forever and young and everybody lived happily ever after is is is, is great. I mean, it calls for, for, for it to be challenged. I'm, that's why I'm, I, I, I kind of hate it when we, when, when, when people build stories around design and saying, well, you know, it's like, well, you know, this, this happened, a client wanted this and then we did this and then they lived happily ever after. It's like, no, I mean, it should be, it's like, okay, well, you know, there was this th thing that was done before and then it was challenged and then it was completely flipped around and it was done this and that is left now as an open challenge for sort of the next people to go and to prove us wrong and we'll be right until we're proven wrong. Yeah, it doesn't have like a clean beginning and an end necessarily. It, I, I think when you were describing like how the level of intensity and cyclical and kind of responsive to other quests, uh, and you mentioned in the beginning, like politics are very mythological. Like to me, that was describing exactly what politics are. And I'm not going to get into politics right now, but I will get into something else that you mentioned. <laughs> Um, that I'm very curious about your answer. You mentioned like urbanism as being mythological and cities and separating this like 
extraordinary from the mundane and to me cities are this like organisms that keep that have cycles and keep reinventing themselves what is like your saga of a city what is like that city that is so mythological to you that it becomes extraordinary well the, the conception of the city itself is something that i think is often like too sugar-coated and you know with this whole kind of recent wave of you know startup cities and you know crypto cities of people wanting to say it's like oh well let's just kind of create a community of people with their own values and you know let's have all these sort of tech, tech uh, crypto bros just go and, and and kind of build their own city it's like that's that's awfully naive because in mythology, most cities are are created by or founded by people who are ostracized from society. Like in, in, in mythology, I'll say like, like who's the first urbanist? Who's the first founder of a city? It's Cain. After murdering Abel, you know, he's, you know, ostracized and he goes off, you know, wanders on his own and builds the first city. Um, and usually cities appear as a response to not being able to live where people used to live. It's like, okay, well, I, I can no, I'm no longer welcome in my city, then I'm going to need to create a new one. And it is a political gesture of saying, well, I will no longer abide by the rules or the laws of where I was coming from. I will create the territory in which to create my own rules. So there is this... Um, this uh, darkness to the creation of a city where, you know, founders are either sort of conquerors or they're despots or they're criminals. And that is, that's a, I think that's a great thing to embrace and say, well, you know, this is a city is a gesture of rejection of our status quo saying, I will not, I'm not happy with the city where we are right now. Now I'll create a city of my own. It's like, wow, that's, you know, awfully ambitious. And um, so to me, the, the and, and it's not here, I'm sort of generalizing because there are different sort of patterns of creating creating cities, but that is one of the most recurring ones. Like, well, that's one of the sort of city building memes that we would find in mythology is like, oh, the criminal that builds his own city because he's no longer welcome in his own city. And um, and just knowing that that pattern exists, like, okay, well, it, it can allow us to sort of frame things differently and not, not to... And this is not an invitation for you know real estate developers to sort of tag themselves as criminals at all, but but to sort of understand that there is this again this sort of peak desire of of, of rejection and wanting to reinvent reality of you know create a whole new environment of rejecting nature and saying well I'm not going to live on a tree I'm going to reshape the environment as it is in order to provide a space for my new laws to you know to 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 be applied to and just the level of ambition to that just gives a completely different story to you know initiatives for urbanism um Again, don't, I don't want to pigeonhole things in that way, but I'm just throwing that, uh, that out as an example of how mythology or mythological thinking can resonate with, with city building or with city design. Yeah, it's also like so attached to that sense of place that you talked about earlier. And yeah, now that I think about it, there are so many desires to create cities in different worlds you know like yes we now we have the metaverse and virtual worlds and in gaming um i i never necessarily thought about mythology and cities as organisms but that's fascinating the whole you know uh, meta getting into the metaverse thing I, I think is is directly applicable to this 
now you have you know the, the team behind meta that is sorry that is um voicing a a rejection uh, you know tacitly obviously not not as an, an aggressive way but saying hey there is this whole universe to be created and we're going to create it and by being the first ones there i mean they rebranded themselves as meta so just to be the first ones to say well i will appropriate the name and i will be the first one to create this is an ambition of mythological proportions I mean, and in a completely sort of amoral way, it's like, oh, no, this is not you know, the happy ending or, you know, the criminal urbanist. It's like, no, this is just that sort of peak desire that definitely speaks to mythology. And um, and so there is a great story to tell there. And I sometimes sort of look at these things and I'm saying, well, you know, should they have, you know, a mythographer on their, you know, consulting team, on, on their advisory team to just help tell the story within those patterns that that make it familiar, that make it recognizable or not? I think about that in politics a lot, and I also don't want to get into politics, but I do feel that politicians should have myth mythographers in their, you know, in their team, just to make sure that they're kind of, sort of nudging things in just the right way so that it connects with those stories. Alonzo, this has been a really interesting conversation. Can you leave us with like the question that people should be reflecting on as they're considering mythology? and how it applies to their work. I'd say um, the question that I that I try to uh, apply to any form of design work is to always you know start by asking what is that peak desire and it and it sometimes can get very uncomfortable because you need to gently separate a normal desire from a peak desire. And it's also it can also get uncomfortable because not everybody has a peak desire just that we're not all sort of built that way. And that's where mythology usually helps because it triggers the imagination and makes people sort of understand that and connect with that value, with that extraordinary value of, of, of the big desire. It's like, if you want to, you know, yes, the bathroom you can be used to brush your teeth, but what else, you know, what is that absolute desire that will make you fulfilled in that space? And that's a starting point to, to, to design, to tell any story, to build anything. Um, there's, I've been doing a lot of programming lately, and I always use it as an, as an example. I'm straying a little bit off, but off top subject, but I, I, I swear this is relevant. There's, um, when, when you're planning a building, uh, you'll usually, you know, get a list of, you know, how many spaces it should have, you know, you're building a school, it's like, okay, how many classrooms, there's an auditorium, there's this and that. But if you look back at your own experience of how you've used the space before, and you find like what is the what is the space that I found that is most connected to my memories, or that most sort of helped me become the person that you are, or the person or the space where you had the you know the, the the most memorable activity there. Then you'll usually find it's not any of the spaces that would usually make a program. And uh, just to think about a school, you know, it's like okay, well, imagine you're programming a school. It's like okay, well, you need like twenty classrooms of this and this, and you need a you know sports field and a basketball court or whatever. It's like okay, but look back at your schooling experience. What is, are there any memorable classrooms? Did the classrooms help you become the person that you are right now? And to me, it, was, it wasn't any of that. It was, you know, the space that I remember most is the space up in the back of the gym where I had my first fist fight with somebody else. Like, and that's where I became a man. It's like, I beat up the school bully or I got beat up. I can't remember uh, conveniently. But um, like, and, and so understanding that that space is the one that has the biggest impact 
on the theater of our lives. That is like a, 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 a sort of a peak experience. Like, uh, what is it? Um, key memory unlocked is like, okay, that is that's like one of one of the highlights of my life. Then you sort of see things in a completely different way. And you learn to reinterpret space or revalue space, not because of its sort of functional aspects or because of the sort of normal baseline uh, desires, but to see how, which are the ones that really connect with those peak experiences and how those can be done better. So that's a kind of long answer to your question about about what to what to ask. Yeah. Cool. Love that. Thank you, Alonzo. Appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, you, Alonzo. Both. This has been an extraordinary conversation, not a mundane one. Uh, thank <laughs> you for so. exploring curiosities with us today. Thank you both for having me here. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. The Fuzz is hosted by Carolina Montilla and Joel Ferris. Production by Jared Price. Brand designed by Krista Reeder. The theme music was written by Ido Maimon. For more on all things fuzzy, please visit our substack, thefuzz.substack.com. Thanks for listening.